Well, good evening. It's good to see each one here tonight. Hope you've had a pleasant day, and we're glad that you've come to be with us in our study tonight. We have guests with us, and we welcome you, and we hope that you're edified and uplifted by the things that we have to share tonight. Uh, this is a familiar slide. Uh, we... <laughs> We have taken a while to get through this. In fact, I'm about three weeks uh, behind, but this is going to be the last lesson in this series uh, on effective evangelism. I've had this prepared for some time, so I've uh, had to look back over this again and say, what was it I was going to preach three weeks ago or whenever it was I was uh, thinking about doing this lesson. So we're glad you're here to, to think about this with us. Uh, you know, we have talked in, uh, in the five previous lessons, I believe this is the sixth one, um, that we have done about the importance of evangelism and understanding our attitude about evangelism. And we've tried to look at some very practical things. You know, one of the lessons we did was on fishing. In fact, I was so convincing in that lesson, there were actually people thought that I liked to fish and it was inviting me to fish. I mean, I will fish, but uh, at any rate, we talked about that whole concept. And in the last lesson, we talked about how to break down barriers and build bridges and I shared with you in that lesson some very practical things that I think there are some things that everybody can do. I mean, just everybody can find some niche when it comes to evangelism. And there may be some things that several people can do, a lot of people can do. And then there are a lot of things that, that uh, or a few things that maybe just a few of us can do. So... You, someone came out and said, you know, I really think your list that everybody should be doing all those things. I said, well, maybe they should, but I know the reality that we're not always able at every point in life to do all the things that I have talked about in this series. But I'm going to talk about something tonight um, that I think that we can internalize and that we can develop because this is an attitudinal, uh, yes, that's a word, an attitudinal kind of thought process we can't wrap this series up when we think about evangelism and as I was working on this lesson I was reminded of a quote by J. Oswald Sanders in his book Spiritual Leadership where Sanders said eyes that look are common eyes that see are rare and that's really true as, as Sanders speaks to the idea of having vision and I've used that quote a number of times but I saw something when I was working on this lesson from John chapter 4 um, that I think will open our eyes and maybe see some things, maybe in a little different view. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. That's going to be a launching place for our study tonight. That's a very familiar passage probably to most of us. And if you have been in the Wednesday night study on John, I think, Stephen, just a couple of Wednesdays ago, we went through some of John chapter 4. But a little bit of a reminder to set up the verses that I want to read in just a second to fit into this, this theme tonight. That Jesus, of course, is journeying, and it's kind of interesting, just, just as a kind of a parenthetical note, that he left Judea, which is in the south part of Palestine, to go north to Galilee. And it said, verse 4, that he had to go through Samaria. Now, actually, he didn't have to, because most Jews at that time didn't do that. You say, well, if you look on a map, you just go straight up to, no, well, you could, you should. But they hated the Samaritans so much. They looked on the Samaritans with such disdain that many times they would cross over 
the Jordan River onto the other side in Transjordan and go up. And then when he got past Samaria, we're crossed back over so they didn't even have to, have to walk on the dirt of the Samaritans or even see any Samaritans. And that, that was a pretty familiar practice to a lot of Orthodox Jews in that day and time. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus just went right through Samaria. And he comes to the, the, in the, to the city of Samaria, which then was called Sychar. And it says he came to this portion of ground that Jacob had give, given to his sons Joseph. And a well was there. You remember in the Old Testament, the, all these wells that uh, Jacob had dug? And here was one of the Jacob's wells. Well, Jesus had been journeying well. Jesus was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He sat down to rest. And the disciples went into town to get some food. While he was resting there, a Samaritan woman came along, and Jesus just simply said to her, Would you give me a drink? Well, the woman was surprised at this. She was surprised on two counts. One, that she was a Samaritan. He wouldn't have anything to do. He said, You know, the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. But secondly, that she was a woman. Because women were looked on with disdain. Look, women were considered a piece of, of chattel property. And a woman wouldn't necessarily have been uh, a man spoken to a woman in a, in a public place. And so she was surprised at this. Well, Jesus, and we talked about this a little earlier in the series, of using situations to be able to build a bridge to bring some spiritual lessons. So Jesus uses the physical act of drinking water and asking for a drink to teach her a spiritual lesson. And so he says to her, if you understood the gift of God and you knew who I was that is asking you for a drink, you instead would be asking me for a drink of living water. Well, she didn't understand that. She thought he was talking about physical water and said, well, you know, sir, the well's deep and you don't have anything uh, to draw this with. And are you greater than our father Jacob that gave us a well? Then Jesus gives her a discourse then on what he's talking about of the water of life. And so in the midst of this, you know, she is trying to understand all this. So he says, well, why don't you call your husband? She said, well, I, I don't have a husband. And she said, well, that's right. In fact, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. Well, that really got the woman's attention. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And so that leads them to a discussion of worship. And ultimately, Jesus reveals to her that he was the Messiah. Well, the woman is so excited about this that the woman leaves her water pots and she goes into the city to tell her friends about this man that knew her heart and knew all the things that she ever did and that she had found the Christ that she had spoken to the Messiah. Now, you remember what the disciples are doing? The disciples are in town getting something to eat. They're hungry. And so they're coming back now. And here is the interchange then with Jesus and the disciples. Jesus said in John 4, verse 34 to them, My food is to do the will of him that sent me to finish his work. Do you not save four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ripe for harvest. 
Even now the reaper draws his wages, and even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for, and others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. I want us to look at this expression he uses here to the disciples, and he says, open your eyes. Their eyes were not really open. There are some commentators, I'm not 100% sure this is true, but it may well be when Jesus said, open your eyes and look at the fields. Some feel like there's a pretty strong implication in the text that as the Samaritans, you know, they, the woman gets her friends and they come to Jesus and they're now coming across the fields. That may or may not be the case. That might be a stretch. But nevertheless, I think there probably is some symbolism in this, that Jesus sees Samaritans coming into the kingdom. And we know eventually that would happen when Jesus commissions the apostles before his ascension, Acts 1-8, to wait in Jerusalem, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. You, you wonder, of course, we read in Acts 1, they didn't quite even get what was going to happen because they're wondering if he's going to restore the kingdom. And so maybe this whole idea of going to Samaria kind of bypassed them a little bit. But the idea of taking the gospel to Samaritans? Well, Jesus sets the precedent. Jesus sets the example, and he spoke to this Samaritan woman. And Jesus says to them, open your eyes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm saying tonight, as we conclude these thoughts we've had in the past several weeks about evangelism, we need to open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, the, the eyes of our understanding Paul spoke of in Ephesians 1.18. We're talking about the idea of a vision, the value of a vision. You know, it was Helen Keller that's credited with a saying, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight and no vision. That's a pretty strong statement, especially from someone like Helen Keller. And a lot of times I'm, I fear that we, as God's people, lack a vision. One writer put it this way, he said, Without a vision, people and the church become self-centered. I think I have seen that in places through the years. That if we're not careful, we lose sight of the Lord's vision for His people and for his church, and it turns inward to satisfy our own needs. And the whole concept of evangelism, of the Great Commission, of taking the gospel to the lost, is a wider vision to look to the fields, to white to harvest, to open our eyes and have vision. You see, a vision offers challenges. And that's what Jesus was doing here. He was challenging the disciples to see things they hadn't seen. He could see Samaritans coming to him. He could see the conversion of the Jews to him. He could see worldwide evangelism. He could see the gospel going all out over the Roman Empire. And he challenged them to see it too, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so I think we need to be challenged to see new possibilities and to be challenged for greater effectiveness in the kingdom and to see greater growth and to see conversions. A vision speaks to the needs of people. 
In this text, we learn a lot about evangelism from Jesus because Jesus spoke to the needs of the Samaritan woman. That she was in sin, she was lost, she was immoral, she needed spiritual guidance. She, she didn't see that need. But Jesus saw the very thing that she didn't see. And if we are to see the value of an evangelistic vision, then we will see the needs of people, even when they themselves don't see that they have a need. More often than not, the people that we talk to, that we invite, that we study with, that, that we pray for, that we're trying to encourage, they don't see the need. And so something has to be done to whet their appetite, to be able to help them see that need, to get a foot in the door. And so we constantly look for ways to do that and to speak to people's needs. Thirdly, a provision, a vision provides guidance. You notice with two things here. One, Jesus gently guided this woman. Now, did Jesus know that she had five husbands, was shacking up with the guy when she wasn't married to? Sure, he knew that right at the very beginning. I wonder sometimes if we see people in, in situations like that and say, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to them. Man, they've been married, divorced so many times, no use even talk to them. And I, I admit there may be times through the years where I have kind of taken a step back and wondered if I should. Really? I mean, the gospel is for everybody, and I'm going to doubt the power of the gospel to change a person's life and cause them maybe to become a eunuch for the kingdom of God's sake and to share with them and give them the opportunity and let them decide. It's not my decision to make. But Jesus didn't jump right in on that point. That Jesus gently guided her to see the needs that she had and to try to help her. He would point out this issue as they went along. But then look with the apostles here. He guides them through this process to see the relationship between sowing and reaping. Later, of course, we know that he would give them the Great Commission. He would even tell them how to start, as we mentioned a moment ago in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so the three and a half years that Jesus spent with these men were spent in guidance. It was spent in direction. It, it was spent in equipping and mentoring. The value of vision does that because Jesus had the vision of what was going to happen later. And then a vision supplies energy. Isn't it kind of an interesting paradox that the disciples were worried about food? They, they, were, they were hungry. Well, Jesus was hungry. Jesus was tired. Jesus was thirsty as well. But Jesus said, you know, my meat, my sustenance comes from something else. It comes from the Father. It is spiritual in its nature. And something I have learned over the years, that when we have a big vision, the enthusiasm and the energy comes. Now, my wife, Norma Jean, would tell you that I, I have sort of been the kind of person through the years that, that has developed the notion that I should eat three times a day. Now, I may not be alone in that. There may be others uh, that are like that. But I know people sometimes, they just maybe eat a couple meals or one big meal or they get so busy working. And I never really quite understand how you got so busy working you didn't stop to eat. I didn't understand that until about 16 years ago when I went to Kazakhstan. 
and was there three weeks on a mission trip. And we were so busy. We had so many activities going during the day of talking to people. Sometimes we didn't have time to eat. In fact, actually, most of the time, we never got around to an evening meal after our final lecture that day was over. And we were eating in our little Russian hostel, peanut butter and crackers or whatever we could get a hold of or maybe what we'd save from lunch. Now, that's not like me. <laughs> it, ju it just... It just that my typical nature i feel like i have to have something to eat but you know then i didn't you know why it was exciting it was energizing I, I we were busy in preaching the gospel and sharing with people and talking to people and it didn't make any difference too bad that i've got to go eight thousand miles away to figure that out but that's what Jesus is demonstrating to us here. He received his energy from another source. And so when we have a big vision and we see what is possible, it supplies to us the energy. So here are four lessons that we need to, we need to see out of this as we open our eyes. Number one, we should see in the present what we look for in the future. Ironically, some people praise the past and they look to the future with hope and seem to despair of the present. Well, that's not the way it ought to look, be. Are you looking for a harvest? Are you seeing today what will provide the fruit for tomorrow? That's what Jesus was seeing in this. And that's what we need to see as we look to the fields. A second thing that we need to see is that all work for God is rewarded. He says in verse 36, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. And so it's all, it's all rewarded. And we should be more concerned about the quality of our work than the particular classification of our work. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, we don't have any more prophets, and so we don't have any more apostles. We have evangelists, we have pastors, and we have teachers, right? We have, in, as 1 Corinthians 12 puts it, we have all the members that make up the body. Now, then they had miraculous spiritual gifts, but we have giftedness. We have five-talent people and two-talent people and one-talent people. And so different people have different ability and responsibility and different positions. Not all are evangelists in the sense in which we're talking about it, full-time preachers of the Word. Not all are pastors. Not all are public Bible teachers. Not all are song leaders. Not all are deacons. But whatever we are, wherever we are, I should ask myself, am I doing a good job of what I'm doing? Am I doing a good job with that? And I need to do a good job. You know, one of the things that I try to impress in the internship to, our, to the young guys I've worked with through the years is doing a good job of whatever it is that you do. A bulletin article. And so you've been seeing Gabe write bulletin and And, you know, and I told Gabe, hey, uh, I don't claim to be the absolute best at this. 
and uh, my style of writing. I'm trying not, I try not to force my style of writing on him or anybody else that I work with. But at least to help improve it a little bit, and there's probably two or three of you here that you can say, Ken, is that the best you could do with him? Maybe, you could, maybe I could enlist you to help us even more. But we probably do uh, uh, four or five drafts. So what you saw today wasn't the first thing. You know, there's, there's, there's four or five drafts before we get close to, and I don't want to be super picky about it, so sometimes I will let some things go eventually. Think, okay, this is the best we do this week, and we'll work on some other things next week. Same with a sermon or a sermon outline, okay? So we want to do the best that we can do. Now, whatever it is that you're doing, are you doing the best that you can do? Understand God will reward you. He will bless you when you do your best. None of that, all ministry is cooperative. We're in this together. We need sowers and reapers. We're not rivals. We're not competitors. We have a single vision and a shared goal and a common purpose. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that he planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. And, and so we're, we're all in this together. We're all trying to help each other. And we need to understand that as we work together in the family of God. And then number four, think about what a new believer can accomplish. I mentioned about this woman. It says in verse 39 of John 4, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Now, isn't that amazing? That these people believed because of that. Now, it goes on to say, so when many of the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed because of his own word. And then in verse 42, they said to the woman, Now, we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. But who does it begin with? An unlikely source. <laughs> I, I mean, does that kind of blow your mind a little bit to think about that Jesus is able to use this woman to spread the message? Now, I think some have tried to use this passage in an incorrect way on various doctrinal matters. We don't know what happened to the woman down the road. We don't know where she ended up, but we see right here a, a pretty valuable lesson as we see the progression of her faith and what her faith led her to do and the impact that she had on other people. I will say this, that through the years, I have seen people obey the gospel that come out of some rough situations, morally, morally. Uh, lifestyle different ways and the impact that their change has upon people that know them is pretty dramatic it's pretty dramatic you know you don't you don't have to go back to school and become a full-time preacher and go to kazakhstan or africa or wherever someplace to make a difference you might make a difference in your neighborhood in your workplace in your family, and when people see the way that you live your life, 
or someone who you touch. And I see this, I've seen this so many times through the years. You know, it is, it is, it is easier a lot of times for other people to get studies of people than this, a preacher. You say, why is that? Well, it's a lot of people don't trust the preacher. <laughs> I'm sorry. Or they look at the preacher as a professional. And he's got all the answers. He's going to try to trick me. And he's, you know. But they don't look at you that way. And sometimes I get my foot in the door because you have opened it with someone and they come and then we can get a study together and we can help them. We're, we're working together in this. And a new believer many times can just accomplish so many things. And I have seen that through the years of new believers coming and they're more excited, more evangelistic and bringing their friends. We need to open our eyes to the serious condition of the lost. In Mark 16, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized should be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Now, we understand that. It's not hard. In fact, we marvel. Don't we marvel at the religious world that trips up over baptism? We, we do, don't we? And yet, do we not trip up over the word go? I, I just have seen it all my life. And in modern America today, where we have so much affluence and we can build nice buildings like this, and we have full-time preachers, and we put out a sign, and we got, it, we got a website, and we advertise, and we say to folks, y'all come. And Jesus says, y'all go. Isn't that amazing? And we, we trip up over the word go. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, I, I grant that that's specifically a command given to the apostles. And yet, I think by implication and application, God's people today are charged to the extent of their opportunity and ability to take the gospel. Certainly, as a church being the pillar and the ground of the truth, that we need to be doing that. Secondly, we need to open our eyes to opportunities all around us. You remember in Acts chapter 18 when Paul went into the city of Corinth and he left, you know, Acts has what we call the we sections where Luke was traveling with him. Since Luke is the writer of Acts, you see those we sections and, and in Timothy, and one, there's different traveling companions. But Paul leaves his party behind. He goes into Corinth all by himself. And when you read about Corinth and know the kind of city it was, and it was a pagan city, an idolatrous city, a very immoral city, and this hustling, bustling, cosmopolitan kind of city, and there Paul is all alone, and he sees these idols? Can you imagine? Why, and those temples given over to uh, prostitution in the name of their religion, in the name of their gods? And God spoke, you remember, to Paul in a vision in Acts 18 and said to Paul, I have much people in this city. Now, would we see that? You know who was converted in Corinth, don't you? First Corinthians 6 tells us, verses 9 through 11. Fornicators and adulterers and adulterers and effeminate and homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, of such were some of you, but you've been worse, sanctified, cleansed. Those, those are people who heard the message. And God says to Paul, I have much people in this city. 
I don't know if Paul was having trouble wondering, what in the world am I doing here? Who's going to obey the gospel here in this cesspool of sin? Are we guilty of thinking that sometimes as we look into the world where we are? And, and it is a cesspool, isn't it? And we see the putridity of, 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 of people's actions and words and dress and, and a- attitudes and everything. You, you can't even appreciate what the Bible says, what Peter said about Lot and how his righteous soul was vexed as he sees all the wickedness about him. And it's, it just gets worse, it seems like, as the years go along. But do we see that possibly as, as an opportunity? I got to thinking about that as I was reviewing my lesson again this afternoon. And I just thought to myself, I wonder how many Christians are in the Metroplex of DFW. And the 2010 census will, will breaks this down. You can go on the website and Google it and find it like you can all things, you see. And uh, so, so I looked it up. And they break it down into all the different denominations. And then they break it down for us called Churches of Christ Restoration. Now, I know probably for a lot of us, most of us here, we might break it down even a little further than that. That's all churches of Christ that would be non-instrumental that would claim to come out or, or have ties to the restoration movement. How many, how many Christians you think, according to the census, are in the Metroplex? The number might surprise you, actually, a little bit. It did me somewhat, because I know there's a lot of congregations around here, and there's a lot that I might consider more to the left than they ought to be. But here's the number, according to the 2010 census, 103,388. If I, had, if I got this done ahead of time, I'd put this on the slide for you, but 103,388. Well... How many people in a census identified a religious affiliation, do you think, in the Metroplex? 3,555,000. 3,555,000. Now, I hope, Tricia, I did this right, but you will know immediately if I'm wrong. I did it. I looked, I thought, that's, that's not a very high percent. So I put it on my adding machine, and I came out to less than 3%. Does that sound right? 103,000 out of 3.5 million. Okay, she's nodding her head yes, so I'm right about that. That's just under 3%, okay? Now, I thought, well, what's the population? Because these are the people that identify themselves religiously in some way. What's the population of the Metroplex? 2010 census, 6.4 million. Now, you say, what's more than that? Yeah, because... They're showing, and I'll look this up, as of last year, we have grown, according to what I read, to 7.1 million. In fact, do you know that the Metroplex, a DFW area, is the fourth largest growing population center in the United States? Behind New York, L.A., and Chicago, we're number four. You say, well, Ken, this has all been an interesting uh, study in statistics. What's your point? My point is, open your eyes. Could God, if he was speaking to us in a vision today, maybe saying to you and I, I have much people in this city? You suppose that there are much people in the Metroplex 
in DFW, in Louisville, in Denton. There's only 103,000 that even identify themselves as members of the Lord's church. You know what? I'd be shocked if all them are going. <laughs> I, I, ha I almost think that if 103,000 members of the churches of Christ showed up today, the buildings wouldn't hold them. Now, I may be wrong about that, but I wouldn't be surprised that that's the case. There's opportunity. A Gallup poll said 58% of the people that are not going to church said if they were asked, they would return to church. 58%. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of asking people. Is God saying, I have much people in this city? Open, we need to open our eyes to the opportunities that are all around us. Thirdly, we need to open our eyes to the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. Now, we believe in Romans 1.16. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God to salvation, to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Sadly, we have many brethren today, even, that are not sure that that's still the power. And so they're doing all kinds of other things to try to get people to come in. Now, we deny that here at West Main. We don't believe the power is in having a carnival out in the parking lot and we get a bunch of people on our property. Or, or the power is in, is in having a soup kitchen and we get people to come in. Or, or the power is in, in some kind of a festivity or having a kitchen or, I mean, all kinds of things that people do that say, well, we use this to get people in. We don't believe that. But do we believe the power to convert people to the gospel? You see, it kind of comes back to this a little bit. It's not enough to be against something. You've got to be for something, too. And so what's he mean? You, you, you all following this or not? I, I'm kind of trying to read. Oh, okay, so maybe you're not in your head. Yes, okay. Okay. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? It's, there's not enough to condemn our brethren to do things we think are beyond, and I believe are beyond the realm of scriptural authority. Do we need to look and say, are we doing what we need to be doing? Do we really believe the gospel is the power of God to salvation? And that the answer is not found in gimmicks or these activities or, or programs or all this kind of stuff, but it is found in Jesus, and it's taking the gospel to the people like the Samaritan woman and sharing with them the good news and teaching faith, repentance, and baptism. Number four, we need to open our eyes to our own personal responsibility. Look at these passages. Acts 8, 4, the Christians went everywhere preaching the word. You know what? The apostles, you know, that's, that's when Saul was persecuting, they were scattered. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. The text says so. It was, as we would say today, the people in the pew, although they didn't have pews then, but the, the, the folks, the folks are the ones that scattered, and they took the word and went everywhere. Acts eleven nineteen says, Now those who were scattered after persecution of the rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. The, the folks were taking the word out wherever they went. Jesus says to us, 
by application. So likewise, you, when you've done all those things which are commanded, say, we're unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. Now, I'm talking about personal responsibility. I'm talking about to do what we can do when we can do it, the best we can do it, to do what's our duty to do. The wise man said in Proverbs 11 and verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Do we believe that? He who wins souls is wise? Well, that's what he says. Or how about Colossians 1.10? Paul prayed that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. You see, ladies and gentlemen, God has called us not just to be faithful, but to be fruitful. Now, that's a whole other lesson we'll do some of these days, maybe. Faithfulness is good. We are to be faithful. But we can put so much of a premium on certain aspects of faithfulness, like attendance or other things, that we forget that we're to produce something, that we are to bear fruit in every good work. God calls us to open our eyes. Someone said, without a vision, our community will perish without Christ. And that's right. It will. And you know what? It's up to us. We can't do everything, but we can do something, can't we? I'm not preaching this lesson because I think that West Main's a terrible congregation and nothing is happening. There are a lot of good things going on here. And through our contributions, we support quite a few people in other parts of the world, and we're taking the gospel around the world. And our, our shepherds and all of you are to be credited and commended that we're doing that. Uh, frequently there's classes that are going on. But I wonder, is there more that could be done? Can I do more? Can you do more? Can, do we need to open our eyes and see the potential? And are there much people in this city? Are there other opportunities? It's easy to get complacent. I mean, we got a, we got a comfortable meeting house. And... Uh, by the world's standards of material things, we're doing good. But could we fill this place up? We could. Could we bring pews out of storage and start lining them all the way to the wall? We could. I mean, there's 7.1 million people in, in the Metroplex. There's a lot of people. Most of them are not even going to church anywhere. And about 97%, they're even claiming affiliation, have never come to obedience to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to open our eyes, ladies and gentlemen. The fields are white to harvest. Well, you sure listen good tonight. Thank you so much for your time and attention. I, I hope the thoughts we brought in this Sunday night series the past number of weeks of uh, provided some help, some encouragement, some motivation and inspiration for us, for each of us to do more and to achieve greater things for God. As we close tonight, we sing the song that Braden has selected. I believe it's Christ receives sinful men, right? And that's, he does. He does. And we need to remember that. 
And we need to help folks understand, you know, we're not, we're not trying to clean everybody up and get their lives perfect, and then you're, you now qualify to become a Christian. That's not the way it works. Jesus didn't say to this woman, when you go get all this stuff straightened up, I'll talk to you about who I am. But until then, I'm not talking to you about anything. Well, that's silly. And so we need to go to sinful people. And when sinful people commit to Christ and commit to change and repent and announce allegiance to Jesus and come to him in baptism and allow the blood of Jesus to wash away every sin, they can be cleansed and he'll receive them and we can receive them. If you're in that situation, we can help you to be right with God. Would you come as we stand and where we sing?